You're listening to Garden Futurist. I'm Sarah Beck here with Adrian St. Clair. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. Adrian, somewhere around the end of last year, you reached out to me about this story. Can you tell me exactly what the origin is? Yeah, so I had been walking around our neighborhood and saw one of the Backyard Habitat Certification Program signs from our local Audubon and local land trust. And I was thinking about those programs across the West and how they might be increasing biodiversity in our urban areas. So I did a little literature review and I came up with this paper by Dr. Valentin Schaefer, who's Professor Emeritus at University of Victoria. And the paper looked at and supported this idea that backyard habitat can be an important part of biodiversity conservation in urban green spaces. I'm really glad you found this. And this is one of these things we talk about all the time, that all of our backyards and all of our individual gardens together form this patchwork. And we're really excited by the idea that urban biodiversity can be supported by individuals. But have we really (laughs) found the empirical evidence for that? And so I reached out to Dr. Schaefer and He was willing to write an article that we recently published on PacificHorticulture.org, which is called Your Urban Backyard Habitat Can Support Biodiversity. And it really shares a lot of his lifetime of research and his conclusions about the fact that we as gardeners may be able to have a real impact. One of the really exciting things about talking to Val Schaefer was that he recommended that we talk to his successor at University of Victoria, someone who really represents the next generation of this work. That is actually who we talked to for the podcast today. Dr. Nancy Shackelford, who is at University of Victoria, is really continuing a lot of this work on the impact of backyard habitat and ecological restoration in a number of spaces around Victoria. Great. Let's listen to it. I'm so glad to welcome Dr. Nancy Shackelford, Restoration Futures Lab Director and Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria, British Columbia. Hi, Nancy. So glad you could be with us. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start the conversation, if that's okay, with the land acknowledgement. So where I am situated is in the traditional Lekwungen and Wissanich territories. So the University of Victoria is actually on Songhees and Esquimalt and the Kwangan speaking people's territory. And they have traditional relationships and very deep histories with the lands that continue to this day. And I personally live on Sewit territory and Wissanich territories. And they also have ongoing relationships that are really important to the landscapes here. Wonderful. You have some wonderful case studies that you're going to share with us today. I really wanted to ask you about this because there is a title on your recent case studies that you published, Nature-Based Solutions for Climate Mitigation and Engaging Canadians with Nature. I love the scope of that. It's really cool community work. You aren't necessarily talking about landscapes that are far from civilization. Is that right? That's right. So I work primarily in restoration, and where restoration happens is pretty much everywhere. And a lot of the work that I do is really focused on, I live on Saanich Peninsula, and it's this really complex landscape of city and rural and less rural. We have a lot of parks and green spaces here. In each of those settings, there are different restoration challenges. And so restoration is happening in all of those spaces with all these different community actors. So it really happens kind of all over the place and 
It can even happen in your backyard. I have a little pocket meadow that I just put into my townhouse backyard. I had to pull up concrete for it. But yeah, it can happen at any scale. Fantastic. So restoration can be for everyone. These projects that you're working on take place in Gary Oak Ecosystems, which in Canada are found in southeastern Vancouver Island. And I looked at the range map and Gary Oak Ecosystems can be found a lot of places, including California, Oregon and Washington. So chances are that a lot of our Pacific region listeners may not be far from a Gary Oak Ecosystem. You've said that your focus is not on the oak trees themselves. I know we talked to a lot of oak tree focused scientists. Can you describe some of the special characteristics of the ecosystem? Sure. I'll say I'm a a little biased. So I come from a background of grasslands. I'm very much focused on the understory kind of scientist. And actually, that is really the most appropriate for these ecosystems in some ways. So as you mentioned, we're at the northern tip of the range. And so the ecosystem itself changes quite a bit as you go south into California. But the fundamental characteristic is really this beautiful, complex understory of flowers and grasses. So we have a lot of annual and perennial forbs that are really important here. They create this beautiful, like purple and yellow flowering understory through all of April. And it's one of the most biodiverse regions in Canada in particular. It houses something like 10% of the species at risk and the plants are in these ecosystems and they are that herbaceous understory. And it's really important locations for lots of different food production sites for First Nations. And the idea of these trees as big, iconic overstory species as sort of the home for this much broader meadow community is really important. Let's jump into this conversation about ecological restoration and and really what that means in this context. Why is restoration of these ecosystems so important? What's going on there? The importance of restoration really depends on, it's always important, but it depends, the exact context depends on where you are and what ecosystem you're working in. So if we're talking specifically about oak meadows, the importance of restoration is really complex because these ecosystems evolved with people. They were created by the stewardship of the First Nations communities that lived here, and they really kind of require that relationship with people for them to be healthy and maintain some of the species that we're really interested in seeing kept here. You know, they were burned really regularly. They were harvested every year, and that kept that overstory from closing in. So it kept it from converting into forested sites. And so in this context, restoration has a lot of meanings. One of those meanings is yes, trying to support the plant species, but it's also trying to rebuild and support those relationships with people and the practices and the traditions and the histories and the cultures that really existed with those ecosystems. And so in this context, restoration really has a very strong human nature kind of combination and and combined values. In other places, restoration might be different. In national parks, where there are these really remote areas that haven't had that strong relationship between potentially human and nature, then those might have different levels of importance. And it's more about, say, wildlife habitat and restoring to make sure that the grizzly bears have places to move through to get to different habitat types. And so I think it it's very context dependent. And that's just a product of restoration happening everywhere and being important in pretty much every degraded landscape, which is most landscapes on the planet. You just mentioned the First Nations stewardship component of these projects. And I'm curious about some of the fire reintroduction work that has been done on the Gary Oak ecosystem. Can you describe a little bit of that? 
So there's been a couple of trials here locally. So in particular, the Gulf Islands National Park Reserve, which is this really cool, <laughs> really amazing park, if, if you haven't been, that is centered just off the coast of Vancouver Island in the Gulf Islands. And they have Tumbo Island, which is a place that they've burned once and they've been studying how the ecosystem responds. I think they're planning another burn in the next few years. And they've been doing it in close partnership with indigenous leaders, trying to figure out how to connect that traditional knowledge with the modern conditions and how to do it in a good way. And I think they're talking a little bit about whether or not they can expand that into some of the other kind of remote islands where that complexity of being in an urban landscape is a little lower. And there's a couple of other instances of for example, the local steward who has a tiny little blowtorch who goes out and finds that tiny little patch of invasive species that are really prone to dying because of fire and just having a little focused burn right there. And I've seen that a few times, but for the most part, it is these more remote sites where the conversation is a little more active. There are indigenous leaders locally who are working on their own reserve lands and trying to come up with fire plans and work with the local municipalities, but it's a long and slow process. You're listening to Garden Futurist. We'll be back in a moment. Trees are the air we breathe, providing expert tree care for 115 years and growing. Family-owned Bartlett Tree Experts brings a rare mix of groundbreaking science, award-winning safety practices, and global resources to every tree care task at hand. And at the heart of our success are people experts who know and champion every tree, no matter the species. Discover how our passion for trees is inspiring one beautiful property after another. Call 877-BARTLETT or visit bartlett.com. I'm excited to share Pacific Horticulture's new regional travel experiences that take advantage of our special connections to the incredible wealth of unique gardens, plant life, and horticulture innovators in our Pacific region. Regional tours are designed with small carbon and dense geographical footprints. Beginning in August 2022, our first tours are in California. To book now, visit pacifichorticulture.org. Find regional travel under travel and events. In terms of the impacts of fire in some of these specific ecosystems you're working in, are there some interesting plant opportunists that benefit from fire that you're looking forward to seeing this happen? You know, that to me is an interesting question because I did my master's degree in Western Australia where there was so much information about which species needed fire. So there are many plants whose seeds won't germinate without that cue of heat or that cue of the chemicals that are in the actual smoke. And there's not as much known about the species around here, whether or not they have that dependence. I think the narrative here and the broader understanding is that that fire keeps that overstory open. And so it makes space for all of those forbs and graminoids. And that's an important part of just the structure of the ecosystem. And that's really key here, particularly now, because without that fire, we're seeing closures. So we're seeing native and exotic shrubs come in and sort of take over and push out the camas and the, the other really important keystone plants. 
or we're seeing coastal dug fir forests come in. Like in those deeper soiled sites, if they're not managed, then you do start to see that loss to forest communities. So the fire played a very foundational role at the structural level. And we know very little around what exactly it did to which native species, whether or not there are cues that species might be waiting for it. We all know that fire enriches the soil. It opens up and allows a lot of light in. It does provide that kind of heat cue. And so the appropriate fire probably was really important to all of the food plants that they were growing, but we just don't actually know a ton about it. Oh, wow. So the shrubs need to kind of move out (laughs) from the fire. And then it sounds like the dug fir is not appropriate in that ecosystem. Oh, that's a very complicated question. It depends on how you define what's an appropriate ecosystem. But as I said, these evolved with human relationships Mm. and they depend on the human relationships. And I think that's one of the interesting things about restoration is we have very philosophical discussions about what are we restoring to? And when restoration was first being conceived, it was really much this idea of the same sort of conservation idea of wilderness, the landscape without people. And we're learning that most of the ecosystems that we're trying to restore to probably are there because of people. And so trying to figure out how to define what you're restoring to and how we understand that in the context of communities and human interactions has been an ongoing conversation in restoration. Is there a restoration group that wants the Doug Fir Forest instead? There is not a restoration group. There is definitely a conservation group around Doug Fir Forest. It's interesting because... British Columbia is divided into these big zones of ecosystems. They're called biogeoclimactic zones. And the coastal dug fir forest is the one that is just here on southern Vancouver Island and a little bit across the Gulf Islands. And it's the one that's been almost completely lost because of urbanization, really. It's covered by Vancouver and Victoria. And so there's a lot of conservation concerns around that, but embedded in that larger ecosystem are these patches of oak meadows. So these are sort of a subset of that entire landscape because it is where they were managed, it is where they were burned, it might be where the the soils were more shallow. And so it's not that there's a conflict between wanting the forest there, but there are conservation concerns on both of those ecosystem types and the communication between those two groups maybe isn't so great. It's interesting, I was talking to one of the indigenous knowledge keepers here, and her question is always, why do we think about the oak meadows, but we don't think about, like, what's the separation with the dug fir forests? Because it is transient, and it's not a hard line between the two ecosystems. But there is that need to recognize that open structure and to recognize how it's distinct from that forest and figure out how to manage according to that. I also want to ask you about some of the rare species protection that is being done. And there was a butterfly reintroduction, I think, as well. Can you talk about just a couple of examples of these projects? Because it sounds like you've got folks doing a lot of different things when they're working on restoration. I think for oak meadows in particular, it's often about protection rather than reintroduction. The tailored checkered spot is the butterfly that has received the most attention around here. And there's a really, really amazing steward on Denman Island. I think he's 80 and he's been breeding Taylor checker spots for decades. And I've had students that have gone to work with him and learn from him and just had the best experiences working with the animals themselves before they get reintroduced. And part of that reintroduction is understanding habitat needs and caretaking for those needs. And so that's a really cool, but quite localized reintroduction process. I think for oak meadows at large, as I said, there's a 
ton of plants that are at risk. This is a good segue to talk about the humans involved in this, because you've said that the Gary Oak Ecosystem Restoration in Canada has a very strong community of people, dedicated volunteers. This sounds like some hard work is involved as well. I can't imagine that it's not. So I'd like you, if you could describe some of the common challenges that the volunteers are addressing and and what types of techniques are they using? What I have always found to be just incredible about this ecosystem and its location in these urban areas. Yes, we have potential concerns around trampling and dog walkers. And yes, we have potential concerns around harvesting of species at risk. But all of that is contrasted with the fact that these sites are often stewarded and taken care of by the people that live near them. And the main method, the predominant, and I think easy to engage with method is invasive species removal. So as a PhD student, I worked here and I worked in a little park called Gore Park. And the neighbor came in at one point when I was doing my surveys and just started pulling weeds. Bird turbul was the one that they were pulling at that point. And I wandered up and was talking to them. And it turns out that every single day they brought their adorable little white dog in and pulled weeds. And so that was one of the ways that this particular park had been kept broom free for decades. And broom is a really big concern here. And so it's this leadership from the neighbors, from the people that recognize and utilize those spaces that is really important in a lot of ways. It's also fascinating because Victoria has a lot of retirees and often those retirees are biologists or they're experts in their field, they're botanists, they're naturalists. And so they bring a lot of that into these parks and use that to the park's advantage. And so I feel like that engagement with the community is just one of the most important components of the way that restoration is conducted in these ecosystems. Wow, that's incredible. And it sounds like while someone's there with their dog, they could be pulling some weeds, <laughs> making good use of time. It, it is completely true. That's what happens. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. So in addition to the examples that you've shared, there are gardeners, landscapers, native plant nurseries in British Columbia that are promoting gardening and landscaping with the plant species from these ecosystems. Can you speak a little bit to the value of just contributing in all these different scales? And is it possible that an individual who is interested in growing some of the species that you want to protect, can they make a difference? A hundred percent. So especially in, if we think there's, there's two ways to think about it. The fact is that we're in an urban landscape and that urban landscape is a mosaic and every tiny little patch of land that you can make into something that has those native components. It's got the plant species that you want. It's offering the flowers that the native pollinators need. It's just that little offering on that space enhances the whole city and that whole landscape because it is that matrix. A lot of the oak meadows that we're working in, that oak meadow distribution, much of it is on private land now. And so we have a nonprofit here called Habitat Acquisition Trust, and we have a restoration group called the Karaoke Ecosystem Recovery Team. And between the two of them, they work with so many different landowners to just help inform them on how they can change what is now turf grass into a meadow community. Creation of that mosaic is just incredibly important to maintaining the connections between these patches so that plants and animals can move from one oak meadow to another oak meadow that's 10 kilometers away. They do that by bouncing through these little patches in the landscape. And so the private land is a pivotal consideration when we think about conservation and restoration in these ecosystems. 
Wow. So at Pacific Horticulture, we like to call that life, not lawn. Is it possible for a homeowner to grow this? Is there a mix of plants that you could grow that would support this ecosystem in place of a lawn? Absolutely. So that's what I've tried to do in my little townhome. As I mentioned before, I pulled up a bunch of my concrete and have now seeded in a mix of forbs and sedges and grasses. We're really lucky here with the amount of knowledge that we've got on the island. One in particular is Satin Flower Nurseries, which is led by James and Kristen and Miss Kelly. And they are experts who give their time and their knowledge freely into the community. And they have developed different seed mixes for different conditions. They have created all this documentation on where to put which species, what the preferences are for each of the plants. They do consultations in someone's backyard to discuss within the process of what that potential transition can look like. And the work that they do, I think, has really made a difference. They not only work with private landowners, but they also work in like right-of-ways. So BC Hydro will talk to them if they have a right-of-way that they want to try and bring back to meadow instead of having as an invaded, grassy, shrubby area. So I do think that those resources exist. I'm just biased for satin flower. I'm sure every region has their experts and their native plant nurseries and and leveraging that kind of expertise to really enhance your backyard can be so important. Let's jump to another topic because this is really exciting. I want to make sure we mention that 2021 to 2030 is the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. Hey, you have a decade right now. (laughs) I guess all of us do. This is really exciting. The UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration I'm taking this from the UN website, aims to prevent, halt, and reverse the degradation of ecosystems on every continent and every ocean. It can help to end poverty, combat climate change, and prevent a mass extinction. It will only succeed if everyone plays a part. This is like the really large-scale version of what you were just saying about everyone having a role to play. I'm curious, you and your students have already started to play a role in this global effort. Can you tell me how the students are getting involved and how you're taking part in the initiative? Sure. So the decade started last June, and it was launched by the global community largely through the Society of Ecological Restoration International. So SER or SARI, because they have the I on the end. So SARI put together the Make a Difference Week, which was the idea that as a global community, we could go out and do a restoration within this one week and tell each other about it so that we can all celebrate kind of our global movement and really acknowledge and encourage each other in this effort to do restoration. And so the Make a Difference Week last year was from World Environment Day, and it was a week long, and it was that first kind of the decade is here moment. My students were involved regionally. They worked with different restoration groups. COVID was in full swing, so it was complicated, but they spent a lot of time reaching out. They developed swag, so they created stickers and celebration t-shirts, and they went to local green businesses and tried to collect little prizes and little things that they could distribute to the people doing the actual work. And then they went to every single event and they passed out the swag and they took photos and they did social media promotions. And our region was the largest global hub of restoration events, which is wonderful and wow. totally due to my students, 100%. At the time, it was thought it was only going to be just that first year to launch the decade, but Sari has decided that it's going to be annual which is wonderful. So every June for the next nine years now, there's an entire week where it's really encouraged that people go out, do a little bit of restoration and register whatever the event is. Sari has a website. What's the week this year? It's June 4th through 11th. I think it's 
going to be increasingly prominent. I know that Sari is organizing kind of regional committees now, and I think it's going to really become a, a way of operating. It's just this beautiful moment of action together. I think it's one of the things that I love most about restoration is that it's a process of doing. I am much better at doing things than planning things. <laughs> and so the act of going out and actually accomplishing something on the land and then knowing that all around the world, other people are doing the same thing is just, to me, one of the reasons to do what I do. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I think this idea of participating in a global effort, there is something special about that, right? Do you think that is what inspired your students, just this idea that by everyone doing something collectively, you're able to feel the power of impact? What do you think is the really the draw of being part of this global movement? I think it's important to situate yourself in this global feeling of optimism. And that if you're going into your backyard or if you're going into your local park and pulling weeds or planting native plants, it can feel like one tiny drop in an ocean of need. But if you know that there are so many other people all doing the same thing and restoration to me really comes out of a love and a feeling of responsibility for the environment and knowing that that is just a prevalent feeling across the planet, I think is really something that gives people momentum and reassures them that they are part of something that's larger than themselves. And it's not just their tiny park or their backyard. It's a whole planet full of parks and backyards. And I think also for my students here, it goes a little beyond that and into wanting to recognize the work that these organizations and people do, wanting to make sure that they feel connected to each other, but also that they feel that the work that they're doing is being acknowledged by the world, by by Sari, by the region, by my students, by each other. There's this sense of these people should be proud of what they do. They're spending their time and their energy and effort. And so figuring out how to honor that is really an important part of what my students try and do. Oh, that's really great. The acknowledgement piece is really important. Are there ways that an individual who hasn't participated before in restoration can participate in these efforts? Should they be looking during that particular week? Will there be more opportunities? I don't know, actually, because it was the first year last year. I don't know that it's something that's necessarily to the scale that it's inspiring activities per se. But that's kind of one of the nice things that since restoration is so volunteer driven, anyone can find probably a restoration project near them. I also want to make sure that all of your listeners know if they ever want to reach out with questions or stories or pictures. I love to hear about restoration. The fuel for my work in gin is definitely hearing from community and from understanding you know, what people are doing and the energy that they're bringing into the space. So I welcome any amount of communication. Very cool stuff. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. And this has been a great conversation. Adrian, I am so excited about the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, 2021 to 2030. When you think about the UN statement about ending poverty and combating climate change and preventing mass extinction, that doesn't really feel like something we can do in a year. No, no, it doesn't. It's exciting that we're at the beginning of it and there's a lot of work to do. I like that Society for Ecological Restoration had this one-time event that they were going to do and then decided that it was such a success and it should happen every year and created this yearly event. That's right. The Make a Difference Week is actually coming up soon, June 4th through 11th. 
this year in 2022. And hopefully we'll be able to keep sharing when the next ones happen. Yeah, so people should keep an eye out for their local chapter of the Society for Ecological Restoration. They should be telling you about events in your area. The idea of doing something when you know that many, many other people are taking a similar action, it really increases that feeling of having an impact and making a difference. Yeah, being able to see that your work is just part of a bigger whole that's actually happening around the world is a pretty moving event to be a part of. You know, you could participate in this yearly week in your neighborhood green space, but really, as Nancy talks about in this podcast, you can participate daily in your own backyard and increasing that biodiversity within your area. We all know that this isn't instantaneous and to take each step towards, you know, plant selection and, you know, improving soil. I mean, there are so many pieces of the work that we can do to build urban biodiversity. Maybe in 10 years, you'll see a really different array of plants and animals that are taking up that space and enjoying the neighborhood around you. My hope would be that within this decade, that it becomes part of the thought process of our daily lives and something that we don't just think about once a year, but instead becomes something that we do consistently. And maybe it's the first decade of the next hundred years. Thanks everyone for listening today. If you liked Garden Futurist, please share it on your favorite social media platform or follow us on Spotify. Find us at pacifichorticulture.org.